Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. It's Friday, January 14th, 2022, the 359th day of dystopia. Truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality, and that's why the central narrative is falling apart. Fewer people are convinced by the story each day as they begin to see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. The time for allowing them to make us feel like strangers in our own country is over. We are Americans. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. This is the end game. Before we get started, I just once again want to Thank all the people who have gone to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator, ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator to donate to support the show. It means a lot. Every one of the donations, honestly, is an honor. And I thank you very much for it. Also, please keep sharing the show. One of the reasons why I never backed off any of my positions and tried to push the boundaries on all of them over the last two years is because I anticipated that we would be reaching this moment. Now, I definitely anticipated we would reach it earlier than we have, but we are reaching it nonetheless. The narrative is, in fact, collapsing, and people are starting to understand what has actually happened, and they're starting to become open to what we are saying. So. Share the show. You will be surprised at what people are able to understand at this point. And so just a huge thank you to all of you who have been supporting the show 
over the past few months, past few years, whatever. I truly appreciate it. Now, from the chat on Telegram, my buddy Lance the other day posted Andrew Breitbart's 13 rules from his book, Righteous Indignation. And I want to share them with you because I had just seen them that day for the first time. I haven't read Andrew Breitbart's book, but these rules are relatively self-explanatory. And I think for the most part, this is where I ended up taking my show. This is an example of how I perceive things. And so I wanted to share that with you. Okay. So the first rule, don't be afraid to go into enemy territory. I am 100% familiar with that, having launched this show in Hollywood and and having to deal with the backlash for speaking out publicly in an environment like that. It sucks, but you're going to get through it. You cannot be afraid to express yourself in front of these people. That is only playing into their game. And what that does is allow them to create the illusion of a consensus, which is how they've gotten this far. Okay. Their movement isn't that big. People do not agree with their stupid ideas. It is just an illusion. And it turns out that you might be the person who's speaking up, which gives other people the strength to speak up. And even if it seems like you are totally outnumbered, like you're at a dinner party, you bring up something, the rest of the table goes silent. Well, a few of those people, if not a lot of those people, are going to agree with you. And they may not have the courage to speak up and announce themselves as people who agree with you, but even that's going away a little bit. Either way, people will come to you afterward and be like, yeah, you know, I think that there's really something to what you were saying. And that's how this stuff starts. People have to get the courage to know that they're not alone and that they can speak up too. Number two, expose the left for who they are in their own words. That has just become easy and hilarious at this point because everything they are saying exposes them too. Three, be open about your secrets. That's an important one that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to. All right. Traditionally, that would be looked at in a more religious view, right? You have to be right with God, for instance. But I'm not sure that it has to be. What you have to do is attempt, however you can, to rid yourself of the shame attached to the things you've done in your life that you're not proud of or that you think someone else could exploit publicly by calling you out. There's only one way to solve that problem, and it's by releasing the shame and rectifying the situation, whether that's making amends or whatever else. But that is the game they play. They are going to try to find your weakest weak spots from your past and go after you for them. And almost always, the truth is that they are hiding far worse things. So you cannot be afraid of your past. Four, don't let the complex use its PC lexicon to characterize you and shape the narrative. And that's exactly right. You're not a conspiracy theorist. Okay. You're not a extremist. You're not a racist. You're not a sexist. You're not a homophobe. You're just a person with your own ideas. And so long as you aren't actually any of those things, 
You shouldn't be afraid to speak what those ideas are. I've been called all of those by some people who are actually, you know, relatively close to me in my life. That is the degree to which people will freak out. And that shows you what sort of dishonest and immoral weapons they are willing to use to silence you. And that is what it's about. It's about shutting down your voice by attacking you. Five, control your own story. Don't let the complex do it. Again, this is correct. The one thing you have to note is that you actually need to not be doing terrible things. So if you are doing terrible things, you gotta get right with all of that. Six, ubiquity is key. I guess be everywhere. I don't think that I'm everywhere, but at least chronologically, I have ubiquity. I'm on it all day long. Seven, engage in the social arena. And that is always a good thing to be doing. I try to do that as much as I can. Obviously, I got banned off Instagram, let back on, and then had to get off and banned on Twitter. I imagine sometimes what my reach and the size of my audience might be if I was able to use those more accessible platforms to market my show. But the truth is, it doesn't matter. You have to figure out how to get your ideas in front of other people. And there are other platforms to do that. And I mean, for me, Telegram is the best. Eight, don't pretend to know more than you do. Now, that is an important one because what we see happening from media figures, for instance, or politicians when they get to go on television is a bunch of people speaking very confidently about things that aren't true and things they don't know. And what they're able to achieve by doing that is a lot. It creates one of their most powerful kind of psychological weapons. It allows them to cement narratives by repeating them again and again and again and again, all about stuff they don't know. But people perceive them as confident and authoritative, and eventually they will just accept that there must be at least something right about what they're saying. And when people find out that what they're saying doesn't attach to reality at all, people start to ignore them. They start to distrust them. So that is what you should not do. On our side, you need to admit humility about what you don't know. Saying you don't know is always better than making points the way they make them, inventing statistics, attacking the opponent, whatever. None of us know all of it, not even close to all of it. I'm on this stuff all day, and there are subjects that I hear about. I'm like, man, I do not know the history of that. The ramp up on that is going to be so difficult. Like I'm going to continue focusing on what I focus on. There are a lot of important subjects I'm just not equipped to speak at length about. And so when you reach that point, that's when you stay open and ask questions. And if someone else is telling you, oh, this is how it is about something you don't know that much about, well, anything that they're saying that you don't understand, that doesn't make sense, that doesn't seem to map onto reality, ask those questions. Make the other person show you that they actually do know what they're talking about. Because no one's expected to know everything, no one can know everything. But 
if you approach with humility and the other person is pretending to be an expert about something they're not an expert about, and you can actually prove that in that debate situation, then you're going to come out looking like the honest, open, interested party, and the other person will look like a liar. And that incorporates his rule number nine. Don't let them pretend to know more than they do. That's exactly how you do it. You don't have to be an expert. If they are claiming expertise, you keep asking questions. For instance, if Anthony Fauci was actually in a long, extended conversation with anyone, whether it's Rand Paul or me or Joe Rogan or whoever, at some point, you can ask him questions that he cannot answer, either because he doesn't know the answer or because he has been lying and obscuring what the actual answer is this whole time. And he's going to try to work around the question. We see him doing that in small doses at the Senate hearings. Generally speaking, in the last two years, Anthony Fauci has not been challenged by someone with an opposing viewpoint really at all little sound bites in Senate hearings don't get the job done because Fauci just meanders his way around questions and tries to play the victim and asks the chairperson for help. That is his norm. If he was to sit down for an hour or two hours or three hours, he could be exposed that quickly and that easily. That is how little he actually answers the question. So you have to probe their expertise. If they want to claim expertise, if they want to claim an authoritative opinion, you need to break down everything they're saying and actually find out what the real deal is. And more often than not, you're going to expose someone pretty quickly. And these days, if someone is still arguing with this viewpoint, they will basically try to tell you that you're not an expert, then they will begin attacking your position as racist or sexist or homophobic without attacking you as a person. Then they will move on to attacking you as a person. And if you get through all that, they will eventually get up and walk away. 10. Ridicule is man's most potent weapon. Hey, guys. This is why I call them commies. Okay? Not because it's not true, by the way. It happens to be true and work as ridicule. That is why it's effective. And more and more people are starting to call them communists. I've been saying it for at least a year and a half. And everybody was telling me, oh, you can't say that. Oh, well, that's offensive. Oh, people aren't going to like that. Okay. I understand people don't like it. It's still accurate and it's still the target. Ridicule is what can take their illusion of power and expertise away, right? You are literally arguing with people whose brains work like children's brains, okay? It's all emotion and need and insecurity and desperation. It's a bunch of things that children don't understand, and these child-brained adults also don't understand. It's why they argue the way they argue. It's why they don't recognize when someone has them in a logical trap or someone actually does have the information, and that information actually does matter, or someone else has the moral high ground in an argument. 
They don't understand that because they don't work on that level. They believe that they are always right because they act and think as children. You have to point that out. Number 11, don't let them get away with ignoring their own rules. And we've seen more than ample examples of that over the last couple of years. All of these politicians having gatherings when you can't, going maskless when you are told not to, or this from just yesterday. So we know how the Democrats have been trying to say that they're going to blow up the filibuster. They're going to have a a carve out for this one special instance so that they can pass voting rights without having enough of the country on board with it to pass it through the normal Senate rules. The Democrats used the filibuster yesterday. This is the headline from Breitbart. Democrats used dreaded filibuster to block Ted Cruz bill sanctioning Russia's Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And if you saw this as Democrats doing Russia a favor, you wouldn't be wrong. Democrats used the Senate filibuster, which they are trying to eliminate, to block a bill by Senator Ted Cruz on Thursday that would have sanctioned companies associated with Russia's Nord Stream 2 pipeline. The bill had 55 votes. The filibuster requires 60 votes to end debate and move to a final vote, which meant that despite the 55-44 margin and the votes of five Democrats in favor, the bill could not advance a win for President Joe Biden's approach to talks with Russia. That was two days after Joe Biden compared all of his ideological opponents to the Klan and Bull Connor and Jefferson Davis for not being willing to blow up the filibuster. That is how principled these people are. They keep making the argument that the Senate filibuster is some ancient rule that only serves to upset majority rule. And they think because they have the tiniest possible majority that that should just be done away with because they need to pass the ability to steal elections for all time. They used the filibuster yesterday. You have to make them stick to their own rules. 12. Truth isn't mean. It's truth. And that is 100% correct. The men identifying as women and then beating the hell out of female athletes are not women just because they decided to be and they should not be allowed to play women's sports. And people will say that's mean. That's transphobic. No, it's not. It's true. I don't have any problem with trans people living the way they want to live, but you don't have to force the rest of us to lie about it. And 13 is believe in the audacity of hope. And I guess he must have uh, stolen that from Barack Obama. (laughs) Or maybe he's just trolling him. But it's true. It's important. It is actually necessary to understand that there are better days ahead and to be able to work toward that end. And I know that's where I'm at. And I know that's where many of you are at as well. And you just got to keep that hope going. And the truth is that we are starting to see that pay off right now. So as the narrative continues to break down, let's go to this article in spectatorworld.com. 
Biden's voting rights, smears and lies. This is by John Fund. President Joe Biden delivered one of the most demagogic speeches of any modern president on Tuesday. You might even say it had Trumpian tones. Ooh, I'm scared of Trump. John Fund. (laughs) The article is good besides that, but that's pretty pathetic. Having seen his Build Back Better spending plan fall into a legislative ditch, a frustrated Biden has decided to run to the nearest mud hole and start throwing its contents at his opponents. The supposed purpose of these remarks, delivered on the grounds of Morehouse College in Georgia, was to push two bills that would nationalize the election process and ban states from enacting voter integrity measures of their own. The problem is that he simply doesn't have the votes to pass these bills, and he knows it. All 50 Democrats might, in theory, vote for it. But every Republican is opposed to what they view as a naked power grab, and they will block consideration of the bill through use of the filibuster. So Biden declared his support for ditching the Senate filibuster, which requires 60 out of 100 senators to move legislation to the floor. And he demanded the historic reform be jammed through on a purely partisan vote. But that won't work either. Because two Democratic senators, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, are clearly opposed to upending Senate tradition and four or so more Democratic senators have grave reservations. The president's announcement was a blatant piece of political theater and it's not going anywhere. But what truly made my head spin was the embarrassing spectacle riddled with outright lies and vicious smears that followed. Biden framed the entire speech around a theme he raised in his remarks, marking the first anniversary of the January 6th attack on the Capitol. But this time, Biden called the Capitol riot a coup. The definition of a coup is, quote, a sudden, violent and illegal seizure of power from a government, end quote. Given that a coup also suggests a coordinated effort to seize control of the military and central government institutions, you'd have to grade Biden as going beyond the usual hyperbole there. Then almost everything he said after that was either untrue, a distortion or blatant exaggeration. Biden and Vice President Harris claimed that the new Georgia law, quote, makes it illegal to bring your neighbors, your fellow voters, food or water while they wait in line to vote. False. Georgia's much maligned Election Integrity Act of 2021 simply says that within 150 feet of a polling place, a candidate, his supporters or an activist group can't, for example, show up with a truckload of Happy Meals and start handing them out to voters in line. Voters can bring their own food and water. Election officials can provide water to voters and food can be provided by anyone outside the 150 foot zone. The law even states this code section shall not be construed to prohibit a poll officer from distributing or from making available self-service water from an unattended receptacle to an elector waiting in line to vote. So that's pretty clear, right? They're just not doing the thing that Biden and Harris are saying. It has never been any other way. Biden accused Georgia Republicans of putting up obstacles to vote, citing vote by mail. False. Vast majorities of all races consistently support the voter ID requirements that Biden labels as being akin to Jim Crow laws. The Georgia law changes the security protection for mail-in ballots from a signature match to the more reliable method of having voters provide their driver's license or state ID number. Biden said GOP reforms resulted in longer waits at polling places. False. The average wait time in Georgia in 2020 was three minutes. Biden alleged Georgia Republicans are taking away vote drop boxes and claimed the Georgia law limited their numbers and the hours you can use them. False. 
Georgia's drop boxes were an emergency measure instituted for the pandemic in 2020. The state actually made the existence of drop boxes permanent and left it to local election boards to decide exactly how many drop boxes they should install. And we'll see where that's going. We're going to talk about the drop boxes a little later. Biden accused Republicans in Georgia and elsewhere of wanting to, quote, disenfranchise anyone who votes against them. Simple as that. The facts won't matter. Your vote won't matter. False. Biden seems to ignore the fact that, if anything, it's states run by Republicans that have increased minority voter turnout. Georgia had a higher overall percentage of black turnout than New York did in the 2016 and 2020 elections. And you got to understand that if you are John Fund and you are talking that way about President Trump and you are talking this way about the election in Georgia, you are either completely ignorant about the election fraud that took place in Georgia or you are specifically trying to obfuscate that fact. On several occasions, Biden claimed the new Georgia law limited voting hours. False. He's made this claim so frequently that the Washington Post awarded him four Pinocchios back in April. The Post noted that Georgia law doesn't alter Election Day hours, but expands early voting by adding a second mandatory Saturday. It affirms that counties can open for early voting on two Sundays and allows counties to extend early voting hours beyond normal business hours. And again, the Georgia election integrity bill from last year not only doesn't harm the Democrat priorities, it actually allows for more of them. OK, all of this stuff they're talking about so far outside of voter ID actually makes it worse. Even some liberal journalists found Biden's attacks on Georgia for voter suppression a bit much. CNN's Jake Tapper tweeted, New Jersey doesn't allow ballot harvesting. That's a Dem state. Delaware doesn't allow the kind of early voting that other states do. The journalist in me, as well as the cynic, says, how come these only complain about strict voting regulations in red states? Man, Jake Tapper must be getting scared of something. Biden even veered into exaggerations of his own history. He seemed to claim that he had marched in solidarity with civil rights leaders, saying it seems like yesterday the first time I got arrested. But the only incident in which Biden has ever described being arrested was in 2020, when he said he had the great honor of being arrested trying to see Nelson Mandela in South Africa during apartheid. He later admitted, I wasn't arrested. I was stopped. I was not able to move where I wanted to go. <laughs> Almost the same as being arrested. Joe thinks him not being allowed to do something on foreign soil is the same as being arrested. Well, maybe he'll find out it is the same. <laughs> there is also no record of Biden being arrested during a civil rights protest. Finally, Biden widely smeared Republicans and Democrats who are refusing to go along with his desperate bid to abolish the Senate filibuster. I love how Fund thinks that that is the only thing. It's only abolishing the Senate filibuster he's worried about, not sealing elections forever. They know that the Democrat Party's move to end filibusters for judicial nominees backfired on the party as Donald Trump made three successful Supreme Court nominations. Until last year, Biden himself backed the filibuster. Indeed, in 2005, he said in a Senate speech that doing away with it would, quote, eviscerate the Senate and, quote, upset the constitutional design and, quote, do a disservice to the country. Now, Biden said, those who oppose changing it to allow for the passage of his national election takeover are on the same side as segregationists George Wallace, Bull Connor, and Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president during the Civil War. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, a Republican, has told me he is, quote, deeply disappointed 
by Biden's reckless rhetoric. Other black Republicans note that the three figures Biden mentioned were all Democrats. On Wednesday, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell responded, saying the president, quote, delivered a deliberately divisive speech that was designed to pull our country further apart, end quote. Twelve months ago, this president said disagreement must not lead to disunion, McConnell said. He compared, listen to this, a bipartisan majority of senators to literal traitors. How profoundly, profoundly unpresidential. I've known, liked, and personally respected Joe Biden for many years. I did not recognize the man at the podium yesterday. Oh, Mitch, of course you have. You're just as corrupt as he is. Even Democrats like Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois are saying that the president had gone, quote, a little too far. I realize that politics is often a rough and tumble war in which, as the saying goes, truth is the first casualty. But Biden's hackish and sloppy speech was more than just deplorable. His distortions did double damage coming from a presidential podium. They made a mockery of his claims to want to be a unifier and cheapened our democratic debate. And as you can hear, John Fund obviously writes in favor of the establishment, but he is still correct about these elements of the voting rights legislation that are just absolute nonsense and lies. Now, I told you we were going to come back to the drop boxes. Here we are. Yesterday was a very big news day. One of the biggest news days ever. Part of it that is kind of getting lost in the shuffle is this right here. Waukesha County judge rules absentee ballot drop boxes not allowed. This is from the Wisconsin State Journal, but it's been reported elsewhere, obviously, as well. Absentee ballot drop boxes, which were used in several communities, including Madison last year, amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, are not allowed under state law, a Waukesha County judge ruled Thursday. Judge Michael Boren also granted a request from the conservative Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, which brought the case to prohibit the Wisconsin Elections Commission from issuing guidance allowing for the use of drop boxes. The ruling means such drop boxes will not be allowed in the February 15th spring primary unless the ruling is overturned on appeal. And they do expect to appeal that. And it may well go to the Supreme Court eventually. But we'll keep going with the article for just a moment. The lawsuit was filed in Waukesha County on behalf of two residents and challenged the commission's guidance to clerks in 2020 that drop boxes can be unstaffed, temporary or permanent. Boren ruled that the state's bipartisan elections commission should have gone through the formal rulemaking process rather than issuing guidance to local election officials. They have the effect of law, Boren said regarding the commission's guidance. Clerks are going to rely on it as statement of law. Commission spokesperson Riley Vetterkind said agency staff and the commissioners will review Boren's ruling in the coming days. WILL's lawsuit was filed three days after the state Supreme Court in a four to three ruling turned back a separate attempt by a major Republican donor to ban the boxes. While it's likely attorneys could appeal Boren's ruling, the Wisconsin Supreme Court also could take up the issue in a lawsuit filed last year by Republican gubernatorial candidate and former Lieutenant Governor Rebecca Kleefish, challenging the commission's guidance on drop boxes. The state's high court has not said if it will take up the case before it goes through the lower courts. Another lawsuit was filed earlier this month by a Waukesha County resident represented by WILL. The voter is suing the Elections Commission for rejecting a complaint he filed last year regarding ballot drop boxes. 
Rick Eisenberg, WILL's president and general counsel, said last year his firm does not object to Dropbox's per se, but disagrees that state law is silent on their legality. Because the statutes do not specifically allow them, he asserted, they are prohibited. State statutes do not address the use of ballot drop boxes, though the State Elections Commission issued guidance in early 2020 to allow elections clerks to make use of them. The boxes were widely used in the state that year as an alternative for voters worried that with the crush of absentee ballots during the COVID-19 pandemic and potential delays in mail delivery, their ballots might not make it back before Election Day. That concern was totally generated by propaganda state media. There was no issue there. An attorney for the commission said the guidance was merely a suggestion meant to guide clerks and did not constitute a formal law. And what you can see right there is the attorney and the commission attempting to put the responsibility on the local election clerks. Oh, it's not our fault that we allowed Mark Zuckerberg to put the election drop boxes in all of these locations. It's the clerk's fault. We co- we told them they could do it or not do it. So it's really all on them. Boren ruled there is no statutory authority to have drop boxes used for the collection of absentee ballots outside of allowed use at an alternate absentee ballot location or at a clerk's office. He said state law only allows absentee ballots to be mailed in or delivered to the clerk in person. And that's correct. The commission also approved guidance in 2016, allowing clerks to correct common errors on absentee ballot envelopes, such as missing zip codes or address information entered on the wrong line. Both issues were raised in an October report from the nonpartisan Legislative Audit Bureau, which did not find any evidence of widespread fraud in the state's 2020 election, but did make 48 recommendations to the legislature and commission for how to improve elections. The Elections Commission voted last month to begin the administrative rulemaking process, which can take as long as 13 months to complete and requires approval from the governor and a Republican-controlled rules committee for rules pertaining to ballot drop boxes. The commission will vote in a future meeting on specific rule proposals. Separately, the legislature's GOP-led rules committee earlier this week voted to require the Elections Commission to quickly create rules for ballot drop boxes and to clarify what missing information clerks can fill in on absentee ballot envelopes. Republicans have claimed without evidence that both policies can lead to voter fraud. The committee voted 6-4 along party lines to require the commission to publish the guidance as emergency rules by February 9th or withdraw the guidance. Once in rule form, the committee can vote to eliminate the policies. The commission plans to meet on January 28th to formally discuss the joint committee for review of administrative rules demand. Democratic Commissioner Mark Thompson asked staff to provide information on whether the committee can force the agency to create the emergency rules. The Republican-led legislature passed bills last year that would have enforced rules on ballot drop boxes and what errors local clerks can correct on absentee ballot envelopes, but the proposals were vetoed by Democratic Governor Tony Evers. Shocker. It seems to me that if you can't pass it as a law, you certainly can't force a commission to adopt the law, Thompson said on Tuesday. The GOP push to regulate ballot drop boxes is part of several ongoing efforts by Republicans scrutinizing the 2020 election. A recount and court decisions have affirmed that President Joe Biden defeated former President Donald Trump in Wisconsin by almost 21,000 votes. And then, of course, the Wisconsin uh, State Journal, this propaganda rag, then puts up all the things everybody knows about 
how 2020 was the safest and most secure election in American history. Literally, it has that right after under a headline that says the 2020 election is over. Here's what happened and what didn't. Well, so they have ruled the ballot drop boxes illegal, right? In violation of state election law. That was the ruling that also applies to when they were actually used. Okay. Wisconsin had no legal authority to use the Mark Zuckerberg drop boxes in the 2020 election. That is what this decision actually says. So all of those ballots from 2020 that were collected through drop boxes with no chain of custody or anything else were all illegal. Boris Epstein was on war room this morning discussing exactly this. He said, that that could be 300,000 to 400,000 ballots or more. And Joe Biden won Wisconsin by 21,000 votes. The fact is, Joe Biden didn't win Wisconsin. He also didn't win Pennsylvania, Michigan, Arizona, Georgia, or Nevada. And it's also extremely likely he didn't win a whole bunch of other states, maybe all of them. This is from Breitbart on Monday, also in Wisconsin. Judge allows GOP-led review of 2020 presidential election to go forward. A Wisconsin judge has denied a request by the state's attorney general to block Republican-led legal action to examine materials related to the 2020 presidential election, which is fueled by former President Donald Trump's false claims of electoral fraud. So no offense to the late Andrew Breitbart, but your publication is not sending us their best. Former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, who's leading the GOP investigation, wants to interview election commissioner Megan Wolf in private. Democratic Attorney General Josh Call has fought the subpoena. Investigators want to conduct interviews and examine records related to the November 2020 vote. Wisconsin was one of the battleground states that helped Joe Biden win the White House. The Republican-led review of the 2020 election in Wisconsin is based at least partly on former President Donald Trump's false claims of election fraud. Oh, you got that in there twice, huh? Mm, great. Wolf has said she wants to be interviewed in public. Too bad, Megan. In a 22-page ruling, Dane County Circuit Court Judge Rhonda Lanford denied Call's effort to block Gableman's subpoena for Wolf to testify. At this point, Plaintiffs have not shown irreparable injury, an inadequate remedy at law, or preservation of the status quo, elements necessary for the court to consider in deciding whether to grant a temporary injunction, Lanford said in the ruling. However, Lanford also denied Gableman's bid to completely dismiss Call's challenges, allowing the attorney general to continue his objection to the GOP investigation. It's not a GOP investigation, okay? It's a state assembly investigation led by a former Supreme Court justice in Wisconsin on the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And Gableman, as I have shown you many times on this podcast before, is absolutely awesome. The subpoena is the latest obstacle that Wisconsin Democrats led by Governor Tony Evers have faced with the Republican led state assembly over voting since the 2020 election. In August, Evers vetoed multiple bills passed by the state lawmakers that would have imposed more restrictions for absentee voting in the state, calling them anti-democratic. And we have just seen Joe Biden's attempt at doing the same on a national level completely blow up in his face. 
as I have noted before, Wisconsin Assemblyman Tim Ramthan already has a resolution waiting for someone else in Wisconsin to get on board to decertify Wisconsin's 2020 election. And this is more fuel to that fire. And I believe that in the coming weeks, we are going to see the push to decertify really build. And Donald Trump, by the way, is staging a massive rally in Arizona tomorrow. He supposedly has some major announcement. It is supposed to be at, well, the rally, there are a series of speeches that are starting earlier in the afternoon, but Donald Trump is meant to be speaking around 7 p.m. local time in Arizona, which I believe, if I'm not incorrect, because Arizona, their time zone is weird. I think that would be eight o'clock central, nine o'clock Eastern, and I guess six o'clock Pacific. And I would suspect that whatever announcement he's making is a part of the drive to decertify Arizona, and that could come at any point as well. But Gableman's work is going forward. He is going after the mayors of the five cities that were involved in the Facebook scheme to rig the election. He's going after Megan Wolf on the Elections Commission and other elections commissioners. And we have a judge who has now declared that the drop boxes are illegal. They are outside of state election law, and they were in 2020 as well. That is hundreds of thousands of votes that were absolutely by the letter of the law illegal. That is what the Democrats are trying to change with the voting rights stuff. They want all of the election crimes, and they are crimes from 2020 and beyond to be cemented into law so that they are no longer crimes and they are able to use that same system to steal elections in perpetuity. And then there's this from Jerry Dunleavy at the Washington Examiner. Judges deny Democratic lawyer Mark Elias's bid to shake court sanctions. A federal appeals court shot down the bid of Democratic lawmaker and discredited dossier funder Mark Elias to wriggle out of sanctions for misleading the court. The former Perkins Coie lawyer, best known for funding British ex-spy Christopher Steele's discredited dossier while he was working as Hillary Clinton's top campaign lawyer in 2016, was punished by a three-judge panel on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in March. The reprimand came for his deceptive behavior in a battle against a Republican-backed Texas law banning straight-ticket voting. An attorney for Elias called the sanctions unprecedented in late December and sought a full appeals court hearing to eliminate the chilling effect of the sanctions. However, the judicial panel unanimously denied the motion this week. Last year, the Fifth Circuit judges determined Elias and others on his team refiled a previously denied motion without notifying the court the first effort had been rejected. Two of the three judges backed the sanctions, saying Elias had wasted the court's time. This inexplicable failure to disclose the earlier denial of their motion violated their duty of candor to the court. The judges ruled last year, adding the redundant motion, quote, multiplied the proceedings unreasonably and vexatiously, end quote. Elias was ordered to pay attorney's fees and double costs, and the judges recommended Elias review the section of the model rules of professional conduct on, quote, candor toward the tribunal and, quote, complete one hour of continuing legal education in the area of ethics and professionalism, specifically candor with the court. I think he needs more than an hour. 
Elias, who launched his own Elias Law Group last year, hired the opposition research firm Fusion GPS, which in turn hired Steele in 2016. Elias testified he was aware of Fusion's plans to have Steele brief reporters about his anti-Trump research during the 2016 contest, met with Steele during the 2016 contest, and periodically briefed the campaign about the findings from Fusion and Steele. Elias, former general counsel for now Vice President Kamala Harris's 2020 bid, gained popularity during the 2020 election's court battles. Michael Sussman, another now former Perkins Coie lawyer with whom Elias coordinated closely with on anti-Trump research in 2016, was indicted in special counsel John Durham's criminal investigation. The Washington Examiner detailed how Elias attempted to fashion himself as a guardian of democracy, despite his lead role in undermining the 2016 presidential election using the baseless Trump Russia narrative. Elias responded on Twitter by accidentally referring to himself as someone who was fighting democracy before correcting himself to claim he was fighting for democracy. So I am not certain that this will prove true, but Mark Elias is the one spearheading the effort to get Republican politicians taken off the ballots in various states by saying that they had aided and staged the very violent insurrection on January 6th of last year. That is him leading that effort. I am not sure whether these sanctions remaining in place on him might affect that in any way, but it's something to keep an eye on. Now let's turn to more corruption by high-level Democrats and their family members. This is from the Daily Mail today. Nancy Pelosi's son, Paul, was involved in five companies probed by the feds as shocking paper trail connects him to a slew of fraudsters and convicted criminals. Oh, so you mean it's not just Joe Biden and John Kerry and the Clintons? Oh, it's also Nancy Pelosi and her son, I never saw this coming. Nancy Pelosi's son was involved in five companies probed by federal agencies, but has never been charged himself. A DailyMail.com investigation reveals a shocking paper trail shows Paul Pelosi Jr.'s connections to a host of fraudsters, rule breakers and convicted criminals. His years long repeated business dealings raised two troubling questions. Nancy's son has been unable to answer. Why did he get mixed up with such unsavory characters over and over? And how involved was he with the criminal investigations into his fraudster colleagues? Now, you got to understand about Nancy Pelosi's family. Her father was a man named Thomas D'Alessandro Jr., who was a former mayor of Baltimore and a congressman in Maryland, who was heavily involved with the Communist Party and their initiatives in America. And he had close ties to the mafia. Nancy Pelosi's brother was arrested for sexually violating two underage girls. And I'm talking about 11 and 13 years old. And other people were arrested with her brother for the same crime. But her brother wasn't convicted. So I guess all good. And that information actually came out in FBI files, which were released. Guess when? January 6th, 2021. Good thing there was a distraction from that. In addition to the distraction provided by the very violent insurrection for the objection to the electors around the country. 
But let's go back to the Daily Mail. While Paul Pelosi Jr.'s mother once pledged to lead the most honest, most open, most ethical Congress in history, her son has a staggering wake of criminal colleagues, fraudulent companies, and federal investigations. Pelosi Jr.'s links to alleged lawbreakers include, and this is a bulleted list here, so I'll just go one by one. The 52-year-old joined the board of a biofuel company after it defrauded investors, according to an SEC ruling, and whose CEO was convicted after bribing Georgia officials. Pelosi Jr. was president of an environmental investment firm that turned out to be a front for two convicted fraudsters. He joined a lithium mining company and received millions of shares allegedly issued as part of a massive $164 million fraud. He was vice president of a company previously embroiled in an investigation of scam calls that targeted senior citizens. He has close business ties with a man accused by the Justice Department of running a fake U.N. charity that stole investors money. Oh, no way. A charity tied to the U.N. was used to launder money. Get out of here. A medical company Pelosi Jr. worked for tested drugs on people without FDA authorization, according to an FDA investigation. Man, they are really hitting all the bases. Gosh, Paul Pelosi, what a good guy. Must have got it from mom. Pelosi Jr. has never been accused of or charged with crimes relating to these cases. But sources close to the Democrat power broker's son and even Pelosi Jr. himself admit that some of his business dealings may have arisen from savvy entrepreneurs hiring him in an attempt to curry favor with his powerful family. You got that? It was never his fault. He was just a dupe. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi is unlikely to be comfortable with the string of convicted criminals and subjects of federal probes DailyMail.com has uncovered as her son's business partners. But despite all of his associations with criminals and alleged fraudsters, the powerful politician's son has never been charged himself and has tried to cultivate a squeaky clean green image. You got that? Everybody will just leave you alone if you comply the hardest. Make yourself the climate warrior like Leonardo DiCaprio. And no one will care that you are on a half a billion dollar yacht that uses like 250,000 gallons of fuel so that you can float off the coast with 20. Let's just call them models for a while. They're not hookers. I wasn't going to say hookers. And it allows him to fly a plane full of models and definitely not hookers to his climate event where he fundraises from the world's wealthiest people and doesn't, as a condition of fundraising, introduce them to the girls. And then they fly to the Maldives in a tall good on his private jet. So it doesn't use as much fuel as the yacht. But hey, if you're a climate warrior, everything just gets pushed aside including hashtag me too. Back in 2007, Pelosi Jr. was dubbed the rising prince of the Pelosi political dynasty in a men's vogue profile. His mother, Nancy Pelosi, herself the child of a Maryland Democratic congressman and Baltimore mayor, had just ascended to the Speaker of the House of Representatives. His father was a successful investor and his cousin, current California Governor Gavin Newsom, what was the mayor of San Francisco? But Pelosi Jr. told the magazine he lived a Spartan life, eating a six-egg omelet for breakfast, never turning on the heat or AC in his San Francisco apartment, taking care not to wash his clothes during peak energy consumption hours, 
and only using his old smart car, a hand-me-down from his parents when the city's electric bus wasn't an option. What a guy! Though frugal, Pelosi Jr. certainly wasn't strapped for cash in February 2007. He had just landed a $180,000 job as senior vice president at data company InfoUSA, despite already holding a full-time position as a home loan officer at Countrywide Home Loans in San Mateo and having no experience in database marketing. Well, <laughs> what? The company was run by major Democrat donor Vinod Gupta who had been embroiled in a criminal investigation by the Iowa Attorney General's office since 2004. Investigators claimed that between 2001 and 2004, InfoUSA knowingly sold millions of consumers' data to fraudsters who used the information to scam the elderly, stripping some of their life savings. I wonder if they use that through Medicare somehow. I don't know. Just speculating. I'm telling you I don't know. I'm just saying, wouldn't it be perfect? If Queen Nancy and one of her communist priorities was exactly the source of fraud that her son exploited. Gosh, poetic, really. According to a 2007 New York Times report on the investigation, InfoUSA sold a list of 500,000 gamblers over age 55 called oldies but goodies, which described its members as gullible. InfoUSA also sold lists of people with cancer or Alzheimer's called suffering seniors, the Times reported. The data company denied their lists had such titles. <laughs> they didn't deny the list. They just denied that those were the titles. Oh, those were just the joke titles that we put in emails. Those weren't the real titles that went out to people. Iowa investigators found emails showing InfoUSA staff knew the firms they were selling to were being investigated for fraudulently targeting old people, but continued to sell the data regardless, the state's AG said. Gupta and InfoUSA cooperated with the Iowa investigation into the scammers and were not charged. The investigation was closed before Pelosi Jr. joined the company. Oh, well, that's convenient. I wonder if Nancy Pelosi helped InfoUSA avoid those charges. And then her son got a job that he absolutely wasn't qualified for, even though he already had another job and they gave him $180,000 a year. But they're probably not connected. That's probably not what happened at all. After the investigation was closed, the company said it had changed its practices and that it never characterized individuals on lists as gullible. Nor does InfoUSA compile lists entitled elderly opportunity seekers, suffering seniors or oldies but goodies. Yeah, somebody probably just made those names up. Some believed Gupta appointed Pelosi Jr. to curry favor with his powerful mother, though Pelosi Jr. denied it at the time. I don't think that's really what happens, he told the news site Newsmax in 2007. I don't see it that way, but I could see why you'd ask the question. I guess you always wonder why somebody hires you, right? Yeah, especially when there's no obvious reason like you're qualified. A front company for criminals. In 2009, Pelosi Jr. was recruited to be president of an environmental investment company called Natural Blue Resources. The firm was ostensibly formed to find and use new underground aquifers in New Mexico. But an SEC investigation found that the company was, in fact, secretly controlled by two convicted criminals who used Pelosi Jr. and others as a front to let them personally profit from the company without disclosing their past brushes with the law to investors. Oh, again, he got used. 
According to charges filed in 2014, Pelosi Jr. was recruited to create the firm, along with former New Mexico governor and attorney general Tony Anaya, by the two consultants, James Cohen and Joseph Carazzi. Cohen had previously been jailed for financial fraud and Carazzi had been charged with breaking federal securities law and was permanently barred from acting as an officer of a public company. Man, Nancy Pelosi just must not have known because surely she would have had her son's business partners investigated just as a precaution, right? A little background check. I mean, she's very powerful congresswoman. The first woman ever who's speaker of the house. Asterisk. Though Anaya was charged, Pelosi Jr. was not. Pelosi Jr. served as president and board member of Natural Blue from its public stock exchange listing in August 2009 for five months and served on the board of another company run by Cohen's wife. Oh, five months, man. He must have really put in some hard work, gotten his job completely done, and then he moved on. What a saint. He just went there to do the job he was hired for. And at that point, he left. And who knows what happened in those five months, whether or not there were political advantages gained by him being there or if it was just a payoff. When approached by DailyMail.com, the SEC declined to comment on Pelosi Jr.'s involvement in the case. However, the SEC wrote in its conclusion to the case that Pelosi Jr. did not play a meaningful role in one of the key transactions for the natural blue scheme. He strenuously objected to proposed fundraising contracts, was ousted from the board by the accused fraudsters, and ultimately appeared as a witness for the prosecution. And there's no way you can twist that situation in re into reality if you have enough political power. Not at all. What a victim this guy is. I can't believe that he is still standing. What strength. Fraud and bribery in Atlanta. In October 2013, Pelosi Jr. landed a job as vice president of biofuel company Fog Fuels, according to a corporate press release. If he had Googled his new business partner, Pelosi Jr. would have known he was wading into murky territory. Just one month earlier, the SEC announced that it had filed charges against the company and its founder, Paul Marshall. The federal complaint said Marshall stole $3 million from mostly elderly investors in Fog Fuels and another of his companies to pay for a variety of Marshall's personal expenses, including luxury vacations, child support and alimony payments, and private school tuition and camps for his children. At the same time, an Atlanta, Georgia official was found guilty of helping arrange city contracts for Marshall's wireless Internet company in exchange for bribes. Marshall had previously agreed to cooperate with prosecutors in his $3 million fraud case and was not charged in the bribery case. How convenient. Fog Fuels, of which Pelosi Jr. was vice president at the time, also won an Atlanta City Council resolution to turn waste restaurant grease into biofuel. A councilman was subject to an ethics complaint over the vote, but the contract was never taken up and neither Pelosi Jr. nor the company itself were charged in the FBI bribery probe. Fog Fuels was dissolved at the end of 2015. In 2018, Marshall was sentenced to six years in federal prison for defrauding investors after cooperating with the FBI on the bribery case. He was released in 2020. In 2014, Pelosi Jr. moved on to two new roles. The first was as independent director of Los Angeles-based drug company Targeted Medical Pharma, which, a year after Pelosi Jr. left the firm, was accused by the FDA of testing drugs on people without authorization. Pelosi Jr. quit the company seven months after joining, according to SEC filings, and left the Fog Fuels position off his LinkedIn resume completely. <laughs> 
After receiving a warning letter, the company told the FDA it complied with all the applicable FDA regulations and had not broken any rules because it was not marketing its product, theramine, as a drug used in the U.S., but rather as a medical food. Targeted Medical Pharma told DailyMail.com the investigation was a clerical issue on behalf of the FDA. The FDA did not take any further action against the company. Man, once again, Paul Pelosi Jr., just a victim to all of these nefarious actors. And thank goodness for him, right? That that contract with the biofuel thing never went through. I mean, otherwise, it would look like that was just another complete and total scam. I mean, taking all of that money from the city to use restaurant waste oil as biofuel, huh? He would have made so much money. That trend has completely swept the country. There are cars everywhere using biofuels. Man, what happened? Oh, wait, no, those barely exist anywhere. And that would have obviously just been a massive scam. Oh, a fake United Nations charity. Pelosi Jr. did decide to include a new full-time role in his LinkedIn resume in October 2014 as business development executive of the Corporate Governance Initiative, though he has since removed it. <laughs> That's how you make it go away. You just take it off LinkedIn and it didn't happen. SEC filings say CGI is a nonprofit group focused on transparency, capitalism, and building sustainable organizations. And that Pelosi was promoted to executive director of the organization in December 2015. Ironically, it was through his ethics focused job that he developed close ties with an alleged scammer accused by the DOJ of running a fake charity. In November 2019, prosecutors accused New York based executive Asa St. Clair of running a cryptocurrency scam through his charity, the World Sports Alliance, which they described as a sham affiliate of the United Nations. St. Clair allegedly defrauded investors in IgoBit, a digital currency he claimed WSA was developing, but which turned out to be the fraudulent bait with which to lure victim investors, the DOJ said. Prosecutors say the alleged fraudster recruited investors between 2017 and September 2019 by claiming their money would help developing countries around the world, but instead used the cash to pay his personal expenses, including dinners at Manhattan restaurants, airline tickets, and online shopping. St. Clair, who was reportedly arrested in California trying to get on a plane to Madagascar by way of Paris, has been charged with wire fraud and faces up to 20 years in prison if convicted. He is pleading not guilty. His case is due to be heard in March. Pelosi Jr. endorsed the allegedly fraudulent digital currency on its website in January 2018, saying IgoBit is the absolute best offering I have ever seen. Press releases show Pelosi Jr.'s organization, CGI, had close ties with St. Clair and his alleged scam charity. A December 2016 CGI press release proclaimed that St. Clair had officially endorsed the organization, announcing he will be working closely with them and pouring praise on Paul Pelosi Jr., St. Clair described Pelosi Jr. as a longtime associate, both business and personal, in the press release. And the House Speaker's son is quoted as saying, I agree wholeheartedly with Mr. St. Clair, and I am honored Mr. St. Clair has followed the same path I've taken. Another CGI press release from March 2017 proclaimed WSA's support for Paul Pelosi Jr. and the CGI in its quest for proper corporate and social governance. Pelosi Jr. has not been charged or named in any public court documents in St. Clair's case. A $164 million fraudulent shares scheme. 
Oro Plata Resources, a lithium mining company, announced Pelosi Jr. had joined the firm as a senior advisor in 2016. One month earlier, Oro Plata's company leadership was accused of breaching its fiduciary responsibility and fraudulently issuing $26 million of shares without the approval of the board of directors, according to a 2018 Nevada civil lawsuit. The lawsuit, which was brought by Ora Plata against its old management, claimed that the former chairman, president and CEO awarded 16 million shares worth $26 million to themselves and close ally recipients without board approval, a move the lawsuit described as fraudulent. The company has since changed its name to American Battery Metals Corporation, a source Close to the company told DailyMail.com that Pelosi Jr. received 2.8 million of the fraudulent shares in July 2016. The source said Pelosi Jr. bought the shares for $2,800 when their market value was between $4.228 million and $5.152 million. That is a big difference. That is an incredible return. That is a 1,500% return. Amazing. He's almost as good at investing as his mom. According to Boston federal prosecutors, the alleged fraudulent share scheme was one of a collection of stock scams, all coordinated by a Swiss financier now convicted for the $164 million securities fraud. Prosecutors claim the financier replicated the alleged fraudulent activity in Oro Plata and many other companies as part of a massive global securities fraud scheme that netted proceeds of approximately $164 million. In January 2020, the man at the center of the huge pump and dump scheme, Swiss asset management firm owner Roger Knox, 49, pled guilty to securities fraud. Documents from the federal case say Oro Plata was one of several companies ensnared in the scheme. Knox now faces a sentence of up to 20 years in prison, three years of supervised release, and a fine of $5 million. Pelosi Jr. was not named in the criminal case or the Nevada civil case brought by Oro Plata. Pelosi Jr. declined to comment when contacted by Daily Mail. So what do we have here? We have a son and a parent and a family. That is every bit as corrupt and anti-American as Joe Biden himself. This is honestly incredible stuff. Do not make light of what this is. Okay. I understand it is a news report. I understand it is a report about a politician's corrupt dealings and that all it is is a report and that the politician and her son have gotten away with everything up till now. Got it. All right. Now. Put this in a broader narrative perspective. Nancy Pelosi has recently been championing the idea that people in the Congress and the Senate, people in American political life should be able to invest in the stock market the same as anyone else, even though they have the ability to set the laws that govern the corporations they invest in. And they also have inside tips about the futures of those corporations that they are creating law to govern. At the same time, Senator Josh Hawley is bringing up a bill to eliminate the ability of politicians to do that, to do exactly what Nancy Pelosi is doing. There was a Twitter account that was basically following all of Nancy Pelosi's investments. I think it was called like Pelosi stock tips or something like that. But Twitter had them banned. They literally censored somebody posting honest accounts of what is in the financial records of a powerful public official. That is 
my friends, is not for public consumption. You can't just allow people to know that Nancy Pelosi has used her office to make hundreds of millions of dollars, literally over a hundred million dollars from being a congresswoman. I wonder if she learned that from her mobster father. And this is another perfect time to note that communism is just fine for them. They are more than happy to promote the communist cause because it doesn't affect them. It's communism for the little people. That's all. And the little people will always generate more money in the economy than they will ever be paid through any communist system. And that money has to go somewhere. So who should it go to? Well, it's the people that put the communist system in place and still control it. Of course it goes to them. They're the ones who made everything so great with the communism. So they deserve it. Now, finally, let's go to CNN today. This is by Natasha Bertrand and Jeremy Herb. Natasha Bertrand, it should be noted, is closely tied to the CIA, has defended them in the past, and was a major pusher of the Trump-Russia collusion hoax. So it is not surprising in the least to see her breaking a story like this. The headline, first on CNN, U.S. intelligence indicates Russia preparing operation to justify invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. has information that indicates Russia has prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine, a U.S. official told CNN on Friday in an attempt to create a pretext for an invasion. Now, would U.S. officials turn to CNN to get important news out to the public? No, they would go to a person like Natasha Bertrand that would give them the exact spin they want. The official said the U.S. has evidence that the operatives are trained in urban warfare and in using explosives to carry out acts of sabotage against Russia's own proxy forces. So let's be clear on what they're saying here. They're saying that the CIA has found out that Russia plans to attack its own forces to blame it on the Ukraine and give a justification to go to war in Ukraine, even though Russia does not want to go to war in Ukraine. And that's obvious. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby said the Defense Department has credible information indicating Russia has prepositioned a group of operatives to execute, quote, an operation designed to look like an attack on them or Russian speaking people in Ukraine, end quote, in order to create a reason for a potential invasion. The allegation echoed a statement released by Ukraine's Ministry of Defense on Friday, and they're not connected to Biden at all which said that Russian special services are preparing provocations against Russian forces in an attempt to frame Ukraine. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan hinted at the intelligence during a briefing with reporters on Thursday. Our intelligence community has developed information which has now been downgraded that Russia is laying the groundwork to have the option of fabricating the pretext for an invasion, Sullivan said on Thursday. We saw this playbook in 2014. They are preparing this playbook again. And if you look into what the playbook was in 2014, you won't find the good stuff that CNN is pretending. Ukrainian Defense Ministry said in a statement on Friday that the military units of the aggressor country and its satellites receive orders to prepare for such provocations. Dmitry Peskov, the spokesman for Russian President Vladimir Putin, denied that Moscow was preparing for provocations in Ukraine. 
So far, all these statements have been unfounded and have not been confirmed by anything, Peskov said. The U.S. intelligence finding comes after a week's worth of diplomatic meetings between Russian and Western officials over Russia's amassing tens of thousands of troops along Ukraine's border. But the talks failed to achieve any breakthroughs as Russia would not commit to de-escalating. And American and NATO officials said Moscow's demands, including that NATO never admit Ukraine into the alliance, were non-starters. A number of Ukraine's governmental websites were hit by a cyber attack on Friday, a development European officials warned would ratchet up tensions over Ukraine even further. And you got that? Every cyber attack in the world is Russian. You have to remember that. It's not the CIA making it look like a Russian cyber attack. It's actually Russia doing that. And you have to trust our intelligence agencies and NATO all the time, no matter what, or you are trying to take down America and you are helping Vladimir Putin. The U.S. official said that the Biden administration believes Russia could be preparing for an invasion into Ukraine that may result in widespread human rights violations and war crimes should diplomacy fail to meet their objectives. The Russian military plans to begin these activities several weeks before a military invasion, which could begin between mid-January and mid-February. <laughs> the official said, we saw this playbook in 2014 with Crimea. Kirby said that Putin is likely directly aware of Russian false flag operatives that could be the pretext for an operation in Ukraine. If past his prologue, it is difficult to see that these kinds of activities could be, would be done without knowledge, if not the imprimatur, of the very senior levels of the Russian government, Kirby told reporters Friday. The U.S. has also seen Russian influence actors begin to prime Russian audiences for an intervention, the official said, including by emphasizing narratives about the deterioration of human rights in Ukraine and increased militancy of Ukrainian leaders. During December, Russian language content on social media covering all three of these narratives increased to an average of nearly 3,500 posts a day, a 200% increase from the daily average in November, the official noted. Well, wow. 3,500 posts all in Russian talking about that thing. Well, I guess it must be Russians doing that to convince their society of something. Such strong evidence. And it doesn't sound anything like the evidence they had that Russia hacked our elections in 2016. Same playbooks, you say. Oh, the U.S., NATO, and European officials held high-stakes meetings this week with Russian officials. At the end of the three meetings on Thursday, both sides came away with a pessimistic outlook. Russia's Deputy Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, said Friday that Russia believes NATO will increase its activity along its border with Ukraine if Moscow doesn't obey the West's demands. Our proposals are aimed at reducing the military confrontation, de-escalating the overall situation in Europe. Exactly the opposite is happening in the West. NATO members are building up their strength in aviation. In the territories that are directly adjacent to Ukraine, on the Black Sea, the scale of exercises has increased many times recently, Lavrov said. So Russia once again states that they are actually not interested in a conflict in Ukraine, but that NATO is trying to expand right up to the Russian border. That is what the conflict is actually about. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has invited President Joe Biden and Putin to hold three-way talks to discuss the security situation, said Zelensky aide Andrei Yermak, according to Ukrainian state media outlet Ukrainform. 
On Friday, a number of Ukrainian government websites, including its Ministry of Foreign Affairs, were targeted in a cyber attack with threatening texts that warned Ukrainians to, quote, be afraid and wait for the worst, end quote. Ukraine's government said that it appeared Russia was behind the attack. A U.S. National Security Council official said President Joe Biden had been briefed on the attack. The official said the U.S. did not have an attribution for the attack yet, but would, quote, provide Ukraine with whatever support it needs to recover, end quote. The Pentagon said it was too soon to attribute the attack, though Kirby noted this is a piece of the same kind of playbook we've seen from Russia in the past. And this is also a piece from the same playbook that we have seen the deep state run in the past. Drum up false flags after having already given you the person they expect you to pin it on. So if something actually happens over there, they are all prepared to say, this is Russia. We knew it was coming. We told you it was coming. Therefore, it's Russia. The European Union's chief diplomat, Joseph Borrell, condemned the cyber attack, warning it contributes to the, quote, already tense situation, end quote, in the region. When asked if Russian governmental or non-governmental actors were behind the attacks, Borrell responded that although he didn't want to point fingers, there was a certain probability as to where they came from. Oh, so none of them have any proof that they are willing to stand on. None of them will state directly that they believe it's from Russia. They will just hint around the idea that it was Russia. So you believe it. And of course, CNN being CNN, you have to also understand that CNN's Michael Conti, Katerina Krebs, James Frader, Joseph Adaman, boy Adaman, Anna Chernova, and Neve Kennedy also contributed to the report. So eight people made that report. You got to get all eight of them in there or no one's going to believe it. No one's going to believe your wag the dog story about a false flag attack that you intend to cover by calling it a false flag attack that someone else did. And that, my friends, is how hard the deep state is trying to generate military conflict somewhere in the world to protect Joe Biden's illegitimate presidency and to protect the deep state's slipping grasp on power. They have run out of all the other options. Every single thing they try to do is face planting. And what they have left is war. And I don't believe they're going to get that either. So massive week of news this week. Really incredible stuff. All of it going completely in our direction. They are crashing down like no administration ever. They are already the least successful administration of all time. They are the most illegitimate and they are becoming exposed as such. Joe Biden's approval ratings are at 33% according to Quinnipiac, a left-leaning poll. He was at 25% with independents, 28% with Hispanics. You got that? The Democrat party who said that they were going to be turning the country blue forever because of demographic changes. They believed that importing Hispanics 
into the country, the shifting Hispanic demographic in the country was going to give Democrats a permanent majority. And now Hispanics approve of Joe Biden even less on average than the rest of America. It is all falling apart. They are under 30% with young people like 18 to 24 year olds. 18 to 24 year olds do not support the Democrat party anymore. And all that polling happened before this week. What is it going to look like next week? What's it going to look like two weeks from now? The entire artifice that is this illegitimate administration is collapsing and there is no bottom and I am feeling good. So guys, Share the show. I will be back on Monday at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Thanks for listening. Follow the podcast on the Telegram Messenger app at t.me slash I'm your moderator. You can join the discussion at t.me slash I'm reasonable. I'm also on Gab and Getter at I'm your moderator. The Substack is I'm your moderator.substack.com and the merch site is cancelcouture.com. You can also go direct to that at shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. I'll see you next time out on the range. Backing as moderator for tonight's broadcast. It's high noon. 
In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'mYourModerator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!